and it, it he proved to be correct, if I remember right. Is, are we doing okay on that? Yeah, that's basically right. So um, uh, the I mean, his special theory of relativity in 1905, and then the, the generalization um, to the general relativity theory, which is a theory of gravity in 1915, uh, in that period, uh, he was out just about in front of almost everybody, a couple of mathematicians who were in hot pursuit, but the general world of physics had just left them behind. People didn't believe special relativity for years. They, they claimed to have experiments that disproved it. Well, if they could only see today, um, those two theories, special and general relativity, are verified millions of times a day. Every time you use your GPS, every time it locates you to within a few meters, uh, that could not happen without taking into account the effects of both special relativity and general relativity. So Einstein is with us, with us uh, at all times. So what what uh, happened in in 2015 was the resolution of of uh, a search for a long time. Actually, there's a couple things we'll be discussing today where Einstein himself wasn't certain of what he had done. Um, the prediction for gravitational waves um, was basically that that the, the idea. Einstein's picture of gravity is that masses bend space-time. It's just impossible to conceive of this in any way. There, there are crude analogies we use, like uh, like the uh, uh, you know, a bowling ball in a waterbed. Remember waterbeds? Um, yeah. Uh, if you roll a marble across a flat surface, it goes in a straight line. But if you put an indentation in the surface, then the marble curves when it goes through it. So in some crude way, that is a representation of what Einstein said mass does to space, it curves it and makes things makes things bend. That's why planets go and curve paths around the sun. But also, if if something is changing in there, that can uh, make those bends basically wiggle and and propagate through space. Now they'd be fantastically weak and puny and tiny. So first Einstein wasn't sure it was even a correct prediction of his theory. Uh, but even once he was convinced of that, he couldn't believe that it would ever be detectable. Uh, the interesting story on here, uh, delving into the history, uh, this, uh, the idea of actually detecting these infinitesimally tiny, and when I say tiny, I mean when these things go by, they are, they are wiggling the space between your ears, let's say, by a, about a hundredth of the diameter of a single proton. It, it's just staggeringly tiny effect. And the idea that mortals could measure it basically was, it was, not considered reasonable until a guy named Joe Weber in the 1960s decided he was an excellent experimentalist, and he decided he was going to look into how you might detect such things. Uh, and his idea was giant, extremely heavy uh, bars of material which could could be set ringing like a like a bell by even very faint, very these tiny, tiny ripples would maybe if it were just the right just the right length, the right frequency, they would set the thing to, to vibrating in a way you could detect. So he started doing this, and, and he got a little bit of funding, and people thought he was nuts, and he kept working away at it, and started saying he saw stuff. Well, that got people's attention. Uh, now, there's so many ways little wiggles could be induced in a, in a piece of material. Uh, he set up a second one of these, uh, and was looking for uh, coincidences between them. Because then if, these, if the, exactly the same pattern of wiggles is seen by two different things that are hundreds of thousands of miles apart, then it's probably real. Um, uh, the, the, what he kept claiming to see turned out he did not see them. What he was claiming to see was, were, were 
thousands of times larger than could be reasonably explained. But the damage was done. And, it, and people's attempts to, to, to confirm or, or refute his findings, he basically made it a plausible uh, field of investigation. Um, to keep to cut the story to finite length here, uh, some serious efforts started in the 1970s to build much larger devices. They, they weren't using the bars anymore um, to, to, to try to measure these tiny ripples. Uh, and uh, over the years, people worked and slaved, and those of us on the outside thought this can never work. Uh, well, they kept at it. Uh, they got better. They got better. The whole first operation uh, got set up. They didn't expect to see anything. They were still doing shakedowns, still doing technical tests. Finally, when it went on the air, within hours, within hours, they saw exactly the signal that was uh, predicted uh, by people calculating using Einstein's theory. So, of course, you have to have two of these. One's in Louisiana. The other one is in Washington State. LIGO, it's now called Laser Interferometer Gravitational Observatory. Uh, and that first detection of uh, two black holes merging together in a cosmic titanic event wasn't an explosion. You couldn't see it. All the effect it left was those wiggles propagating out, filling the universe, getting all the way to Earth, and making tiny jiggles exactly the same in two different places at the Earth. And uh, that... And it was about 13 billion miles or light years away, I guess, light years. Uh, it really far. Uh, it turns out that the waves, those kinds of waves, uh, don't fall off the distance as, as fast as light would. Uh, and so you actually, those, those devices have more sensitivity to very distant events. a good thing because uh, large black holes don't collide very often. <laughs> uh, but if you have the whole universe to look for them, uh, you'll see something. So now they've seen, I don't know, 10 or 15 confirmed cases of merging black holes. It's a whole new kind of astronomy. Well, one of the things that I've learned in trying to prepare to do a program with you, and I'm, of course I'm interested in, in uh, astronomy as well, is uh, the, the uh, space-time, you were talking about uh, uh, waterbed. I, I, uh, Brian Green, who is a popularizer of science, he used the word fabric, you know, kind of like on a trampoline or something, you know, where you yeah. roll, roll, roll some billiard balls. And actually one of the better representations of this I saw once was on a program called The Simpsons. I, I know you don't watch much television, but uh, uh, the, young, the younger kid of The Simpsons had been blown into outer space and his father had to go get him and he got out there on that all those crosshatch things, you know, and every time he stepped down, the thing, the fabric gave away under him. I guess yeah. he was creating some kind of gravity while he was doing that. So. Right, right. Yeah, that's but, a good uh, visual representation. It's misleading because actually what's curved is not space, but space hyphen time, which is a weird four-dimensional construct that you cannot visualize. So the difference between between the physicists and, and people who are struggling to understand this stuff is we've given up trying to visualize it. We know it can't be done. Uh, it's just frustrating to, to try. We know how to handle the mathematics. You need you need a kind of calculus with which you can describe curved surfaces. And uh, so Einstein thought he was going to have to invent that himself uh, in the early 20th century when he realized what he was in for. Um, and then the mathematician said, no, no, no. Mathematicians have been doing this stuff 50, 60 years. Riemann and people have, uh, just for fun. They had no idea it would ever be important. But uh, there was an enormous relief to him that all he had to do was learn what had been previously worked out. All the theorems and the properties, all the mathematics to describe this was already in place. But it's still it's pretty ugly. It's interesting, and this might, 
might uh, touch on our later discussions about uh, uh, Roger Penrose. But it's interesting when I read about the history of, of these kinds of things, the uh, the relationship between the mathematicians and the physicists. Uh, I'm thinking of Faraday and uh, James Clerk Maxwell. Faraday knew about all the stuff, but he was a lousy mathematician, and Clark Maxwell knew knew the mathematics to write up. And I, I'm given to believe that Maxwell is just about as important as Einstein was in in a different century. I would I would give him that kind of credit. It was uh, the the first hint of what was turned out to be special relativity is encoded in Maxwell's equations of electrodynamics. Actually, they're not his equations. He simply realized that results uh, uh, that were obtained by various other people, including Faraday, fit together. There's one huge, incredibly important missing piece, which he added, and we now call them Maxwell's equations. And in them is the genesis of special relativity. So, yeah, Maxwell was, was you could argue that he was the greatest 19th century, certainly the greatest 19th century theorist. And uh, he's the one, and we're going to take a break here, so this will be, but he brought together all the, the, uh, the uh, different forms of, of wave energy, I guess it would be called, I'm, I'm, I don't know the scientific terms, but I guess the kind of radio that we're talking on is, is, uh, became a lot more possible when he identified that, that light waves and, and, and other kinds of waves. In fact, I think one of the, it seems to me that one of the greatest things that's happened in the late 20th and early 21st century is having telescopes that view things other than uh, the visual light, you know, the, right, right. the, the different wa- the different wavelengths. There's, a lot, there's an awful lot of waves coming in that can be recognized and analyzed that we, that we don't see, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. We are, in fact, talking with Dr. Stephen Reynolds, and I'm probably throwing him more curveballs than he wants to take a swing at, but he is a professor of physics at NC State University and a person we look forward to talking with, and we'll be back with him just after this. 925 at WPTF. We went a little bit long on the first session, so Dr. Reynolds will go a little short. We'll, we'll have about five minutes here before the, the half-hour news. Dr. Stephen Reynolds, professor of physics at NC State, is our guest. Dr. Reynolds, I believe in something you wrote to me or an email or something, or somewhere, I read that you, uh, well, your first one of your first papers that you wrote, maybe your first published paper, had something to do with what we now call black holes. So you, yeah. you apparently been in the black hole game for a long time. It wasn't called that then. There was another name for it. Am I, well, am I right about that? More or less. Um, yeah, so I was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, uh, a very interesting character in the astronomy department named Don Backer used to make a collection of weird astronomical objects that, that had run across his, uh, his awareness. He was a radio astronomer, and uh, he said, well, it's this strange little source of radio waves at the very center of our Milky Way galaxy. Um, I wonder what that's like. And so I got interested in it with my thesis advisor. Uh, and we, uh, it, it had very unusual properties. So, so at that time, uh, black holes weren't, black, people knew about them. Uh, they were talking about them. There was no real sense that the universe might be full of them. Uh, but they, so they were a little bit of a, a little bit of a fringe idea. But what wasn't a fringe idea at that time was that the centers of galaxies contained some kind of monster that could produce all sorts of different things. Distant, some galaxies had two oppositely directed 
jets of radio-emitting material that made these gigantic galaxy-sized clouds of stuff. Others had extremely bright emission from the very centers. And so something funny was going on, and, and I, we wondered, could there be a small version of that in our own Milky Way? Uh, and so I was working on what a system looks like if material is somehow ejected from a central magic black box, moving at nearly the speed of light. Relativistic jets, they're called. And I wrote one of the first papers on those, and I modeled the center of our own galaxy as a relativistic jet. Uh, it, I, we didn't speculate on where it came from, but we did um, point out the resemblance to the, uh, to the monsters at, uh, in, that appeared to be at the centers of other galaxies. Um, so that has, it turns out that that object, that radio source is the relative of the, uh, of the quasars and radio galaxies, uh, which we now know to be powered by black holes. In fact, in the 70s, some of the first evidence that it was a black hole was obtained by some infrared astronomers who de detected motions way too fast to be what you would expect for just stuff milling around in the center. But only you, you would only expect them if something was orbiting a really big mass. We didn't know what it was, but there was evidence for it. There's still apparently a right, right much discussion and lack of knowledge about what's going on inside of a black hole. Does that sound right to you? Well, the, yeah, the difficulty here is that one of the predictions of general relativity is that you cannot ever know what is inside the black hole because uh -huh. that is okay. cut off okay. from our universe. It is permanently detached and, and separate. And this all seems so preposterous. I know we'll break from in a minute here, but we can talk more afterwards. Um, but this is Einstein's second prediction of his theory that he didn't believe himself. Um, uh, not long after uh, the theory was published, there, I don't know, there were probably five people on the planet who understood it well enough to be able to use it. But one of those was a young uh, German uh, mathematician named Carl Schwarzschild. And uh, he found a solution to the equations of general relativity, the simplest thing you could imagine, a single mass in the center of the universe. Uh, and it had that, that solution. It solved the equation, but it had a real terrible feature. Um, it predicted that at the center of this mass that everything went to infinity. Usually with, when infinity is the answer, uh, it means that you made a mistake. Um, and so that, the question of the nature of that was something that was, was problematic. Einstein didn't believe that that could really come about, uh, and that was basically the, uh, uh, the general opinion until Roger Penrose. Okay, we're, we're, we're that, that's a nice setup because it is time just about to to take a break. So we'll we'll let you take a take a, a deep breath for a while while we find out what's going on in the world. WPTF news time is uh, nine thirty. Live and in real time radio on this Monday night, January fourth, twenty twenty one. You thought I was going to say twenty twenty, did you? But thank the Lord, twenty twenty is over. This is the point where we used to do a little promoing of what's coming later in the week, and uh, since we are just getting rolling in winter in in this part of the world, we've invited the, our our meteorologist uh, Rod Gonski to come visit with us tomorrow night, and we hope you'll tune in for that. He'll let us know what's going on in terms of the weather. Wednesday night will be an open phone night, uh, one of those nights that I call nostalgia, and we will perhaps roll the the tape back a little bit and think about something that we wish we was here that is in fact gone now, or, or some other version of that, that little play. 
uh, Thursday night, Austin Maddox will be here to talk about uh, stamps and coins. Uh, he's with uh, Maddox Stamps and Coins on Oberlin Road in Raleigh and is a regular visitor. And, he'll, and then Friday night, we're going to have trivia night as usual. And probably this Friday night, we're going to talk about the king. No, no, we're not talking about one of those other guys. We're talking about Elvis Presley because it's the anniversary of Elvis Presley's birthday. And uh, we'll find out all about the Presbyterians. But tonight we're talking science. We're talking astronomy. Uh, once in a while you'll see an article with, with uh, really good scientific news in the newspaper or catch it on one of the radio or TV programs. But uh, we don't pay enough attention to the, what's going on in that part of the world. And so we're trying to make up with that. And one of the things that I noticed that led me to call on Dr. Stephen Reynolds professor of physics at NC State University, was that a Brit, uh, Roger Penrose, whose career I've sort of halfway followed, along with a couple of other people, got the Nobel Prize for physics. And I actually don't remember actually uh, Dr. Reynolds seeing it in the newspaper anywhere. I didn't discover it until a couple of months after it had happened. But one of the things that he got the prize for, although it was in the distant past, was his dealing with black holes. Great. So, um, yeah, Penrose is a great math is a great mathematical physicist. Um, collaborated with Stephen Hawking as well as other major names in this. Um, and uh, let me put in a plug at this point for his general audience, in principle, general audience book called *The Emperor's New Mind*. Uh, it's uh, pretty dense going, but it really is intended for people without a background, and it's fascinating. At any rate, um, he uh, was. Uh, uh, very well versed in the general theory of relativity, uh, and this whole question about the possible reality of this catastrophic, um, essentially puncture in the middle of of, of Schwarzschild's equations to describe a, a gravity from a mass, things went to infinity in the middle. That just didn't seem reasonable to people. Um, Can I ask you? I want to ask you one question. Yeah. You mentioned Schwarzschild, and I think his first name is called. Right. I know he was a German, and did he survive World War One or not? He did not. He died just a few months after publishing that paper. Okay, right. I thought there was something, but he was, I think you said earlier, and I remember reading this somewhere else, that Einstein didn't believe the equations could be solved, and he solved them. You know, zip, it was done, and uh, yeah. he didn't make it out of the war. Yeah, that's right. It's just some more tragic loss of life. Boy, you, you realize what fraction of, of talented scientists and art artists lost, died in World War One. It's tragic. But, uh, yeah, so, so the this, this solution was knocking around. Um, but the first attempt to, to see whether the universe could ever produce such a thing was actually made by Oppenheimer, uh, who was also, said, before he took over the Manhattan Project, that was his area of physics, theoretical physics and general relativity. Uh, he and, a, and several uh, collaborators worked out they imagined extremely dense stars that were that whose gravity was so strong that it might push them into this state. And they, they showed that if, if if you assumed everything was perfectly spherical, physicists love to do this. Um, even if it's not, it makes everything so much simpler. Um, they uh, they they uh, discovered that you would make a black hole. It would collapse to the state that was described by Schwarzschild's mathematics, which had this law, apparently, of the, of the point where the density became infinite. Um, so, so that was out there. But people said, well, no, the universe can't do this. The universe doesn't, doesn't go bonkers like that. 
there must must be that real stars they're not perfectly round and something happens intervenes they can't you know it, maybe maybe you never get this real uh, black hole so somehow Penrose got interested in this problem uh, and from very general considerations he just he thought he thought had a whole invented a whole bunch of new techniques to, to think about this and new new graphical uh, ways to try to get your to, to help your intuition uh, he was able to prove that um, in a certain stage in the collapse of, of a star of any shape, you will automatically make uh, what's called an event horizon, this curtain that pinches off its interior from the rest of the universe forever. And at the center of that, there is a singularity, a point where the density goes to infinity. So we now think that what's going to rescue us from that isn't just run-of-the-mill. It, it's not something in general relativity. It's not something in astrophysics that it, it's going to have to be a theory of quantum gravity, which we don't have, that, uh, that's going to save us. But barring that, but we don't have such a theory, by the way, needless to say. Barring that, there will be black holes, and they will have singularities at their centers. So that, that was an incredible achievement in the 1960s, and really, I think, emboldened the astronomers to really go out and look for these things. They're not something that was just a, a weird um, wrinkle in the mathematics that didn't have... have physical reality, they really could form. And uh, the first application was to these, these uh, uh, monsters in the center of galaxies that I was talking about. What could produce all the energy? People knew that there were things called quasars that were extremely bright uh, and extremely far away, extremely luminous, and they didn't know what powered them. So there were various theories. This is now when I was in graduate school. Uh, and what finally... Um, came into ascendancy is now widely accepted is that what these are are solar uh, black holes with billions of times the mass of the sun. Now the black hole doesn't produce light, but if stuff is falling into it, the process of falling in is so violent that that material can be heated to very high temperatures. Uh, furthermore, um, the, the, some other theorists have shown that uh, under some circumstances, not all the material falls into the hole, but some of it goes shooting out the rotation axes at high speeds to make these jets I was talking about. So when you see these phenomena, we now believe that that's a giant black hole swallowing material from the interior of its galaxy. Not only do we believe that that explains the uh, few percent of galaxies that are known to be active in this way, but we think that all galaxies go through such a phase, and their, their engine just shuts down. So in the Milky Way, we believe there's such a thing. Now, it's, it's a, a dwarf by the standards of these billion solar mass ones. It's only a, only 4 million times the mass of the sun. But, uh, and it's also uh, pretty inefficient. But we think it's now the same kind of beast. So, uh, uh, and smaller ones can exist, too. A single star collapsing could make a black hole of 10 or 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun. And if it has a companion uh, or the material falls into it, um, that material can get uh, rotating so violently that it produces X-rays. So the galaxy is studded with these things called binary X-ray sources, which are uh, a normal, more or less normal star orbiting very close to a black hole, material falling in uh, and getting hot on the way in. So you see that. And many of the pr detailed predictions for uh, such a picture have been borne out by the observation. So black holes are, black holes are real. They're common. Um, they're all around us. And it sounds like even if they're black holes and cannot be seen because they swallow up light, 
there's a lot of what you've just described is there's a lot of tracks are being left. Uh, so That's you can right. follow the, them in directly. The stuff, the stuff can't get back out through the event horizon, but on its way in, it can make a big noise. Yeah. I was going to say that the, we've, I've learned two term, term, two bits of terminology, and I think, uh, oh, you said his name, the the uh, the, the guy, the wheelchair guy, says uh, they, they Hawking. call him. Pardon me? Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, yes. Uh, he ended up on a couple of, he was a, you know, kind of a popular figure. He ended up on a couple of popular television programs, and... Uh, but uh, he uh, got involved in controversies over the event horizon and the uh, singularity, if I remember correctly. And, right. Um, he, he did important work on the, on the nature of, of black holes and how they fit into other parts of physics, like the laws of thermodynamics. Um, yeah, uh, very important stuff. I, my own feeling was that he eminently deserved the Nobel Prize himself, but he didn't live long enough. Have to be alive to get a... And the thing that I think, if I understood all this right, is that Penrose actually got it this year for something that he did about 40 years ago. Uh, that's, that's right. You get in line, basically, uh, for the Nobel Prize, and uh, you wait for a, a year where there's not some spectacular new solid-state physics event or something else, and if it's a slow year in other areas, your, your number might come up. Well, I did some reading on him, and you mentioned... Uh, uh, figures that he apparently was uh, uh, some inclination to be a kind of uh, designer of graphic uh, demonstrations and so on. And, and when he was young, apparently he was uh, his father was a friend with M. C. Escher. I know you who I know who I'm talking about. The, right. the guy who drew stairways that went to nowhere and so on. But he got uh, picked up apparently a lot of that from there. So uh, he he makes me want to get get my Amazon. Uh, uh, Cranked up on the uh, on the computer here and order a couple of books about Escher and almost the book Gurdle Escher and Bach that was right, out. Right. Yep. I got a copy of that. Yeah. So the things called Penrose tiles or Penrose. Penrose tiles. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Different shapes that you can use to. Uh, I mean, imagine making. So you can clearly you can tile your bathroom floor with square tiles or rectangular tiles. Our round ones don't work. Triangles would work. So you start thinking, what kind of shapes, what kind of weird shapes might there be? And so there's whole classes of these, and uh, this is, it's, a, it's a kind of mathematics, and, and uh, I don't know exactly what defines a Penrose tiling in particular, but that was just something else he was thinking about. Well, it's good. And I've watched him in a couple of interviews, and he seems very amiable. He seems very, very easy to talk to and, uh, and, and comfortable with himself. Uh, our listeners should know that I'm talking. Tom Kearney is here on the Tom Kearney Show on this Monday night with uh, Dr. Stephen Reynolds, professor of physics at NC State, where he is, has been a member of the faculty for, I think, since 1985, and he, where he's a full professor. And something we might could do uh, in the last quarter of the program, because uh, we're going to take another break here, Dr. Reynolds, is if you have some aspect of your work that you are just or turned on by, or something else in particular that you'd like to talk about, uh, the conjunction of the planets or whatever, uh, you would be, be be asked and be free to do that. And we'll go along that lane when we come back. Every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10, we have a little bit of live and in real-time radio and sort of keep you in touch with, with things uh, in North Carolina. We like to draw on our resources, uh, we could probably find a, 
uh, an astronomer at Caltech or at the MIT tonight, but we've got one at NC State, and he's on the radio with us. His name is Stephen Reynolds. Uh, Dr. Reynolds, uh, is there anything important going on in, in, in the area that you're interested in, and that is the supernova? I, I've always I've been a fan of 1987A since I read an article in the American Scholar about it many years ago. Well, uh, supernovae are pretty interesting. I mean, stuff that blows up tends to interest at least those of us uh, gifted with the white chromosome. But uh, um, they also uh, are responsible for um, producing a lot of the heavy elements in the universe. So when I was in graduate school, the law was that uh, stars, as they turn hydrogen and helium into their cores, mostly what, that's what they do. They take hydrogen and turn it into helium. Uh, toward the end of their lives, they start... The helium can be made into other things to get energy out, keep the star up. Uh, but once once the uh, those elements have been built up to iron, that's as that's as far as you can go and get energy out. So the question is, where do all those other elements in the periodic table come from? Iron's only number twenty six. Uranium is ninety two. So where are all this with the gold, silver, all of those you know argon, all kinds of stuff? Where did that all come from? If stars can't make it. Well, they make it explosively. It costs energy, but if you blow up, you've got energy to burn. And so the idea was all those heavy elements got made in supernovae. Well, that turns out it's probably not correct. And that actually relates to what we started out talking about. Um, this, I thought, was a fringe idea, but it has absolutely become central and mainstream. That a lot of the heavy elements, heavier than iron, are created in explosions, all right, but not in exploding stars. Instead, by the merging of two neutron stars, which are themselves the products of supernova explosions. When massive stars explode, uh, what's normally left behind is uh, about the mass of the sun squeezed into a tiny ball uh, the size of, I don't know, Morrisville, uh, which is uh, the densest thing that there can be short of a black hole. So these things, the, these uh, neutron stars, that's what uh, Oppenheimer was, was working on. Uh, back in the 30s before anyone had any idea you could ever detect such things. Uh, now we know we can detect them if they happen to have magnetic fields and spin because they flash beams of radio waves past us several times a second, uh, and they're called pulsars. Thousands are known. So pulsars are common, neutron stars are common. Two neutron stars orbiting each other appropriately in, in the right way can um, lose energy from gravitational waves spiral in and merge in a violent explosion. So that thing, that explosion does a bunch of things. One, it suddenly cooks up a whole bunch of the heavy elements. Two, it makes another one of these gravitational wave signals. Uh, and three, it produces at least a brief burst of regular electromagnetic radiation, the kind of conventional you know, light and infrared and x-rays and radio, the things that people can detect. And if you're lucky enough to catch one of these going on, you can try to verify this whole picture. One of those has been detected by the LIGO instrument, merging neutron stars. So that took a little bit of the shine away from the supernovae, but you still have to have those to make the neutron stars in the first place. So one of the things I've been doing lately with my collaborators is looking at x-rays produced by the remains of supernovae. When a star blows up, the stuff that used to be in the star goes flying out into interstellar space at enormous speeds, maybe several percent of the speed of light, uh, and it runs into stuff out there, and it makes a thing called a supernova remnant. 
maybe a shell of, 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 of gas that's so hot that it produces X-rays. It can produce radio waves. So I study these with orbiting X-ray telescopes. And uh, one of the most interesting things is what, what, what are the most recent supernovae? I mean, we can see supernovae in distant galaxies, but they're not that common in any given galaxy. And there hasn't been one in our own galaxy um, for about over 100 years. And actually, we, and we didn't um, discover this object, but we showed that a, a, a very young-looking little round radio and X-ray source was, in fact, the remains of a supernova that was uh, about 100 years ago, but there was too much obscuration for it to be seen on Earth. And of course, these are time frames measured at the Earth. So, um, so we just watch it grow. And so we continue every four years, go back with the Chandra X-ray Observatory orbiting in space, take another X-ray snapshot, see it's a little bit bigger, a little bit different. We're slowly putting together a movie of an exploding star. But uh, we also, in this last year, looked at a couple of other objects and discovered two more of the youngest, the remains of very recent supernovae. Um, so that's an exciting thing to be able to do, and uh, they, they just by, by the fact that they look different now than they did 10 or 15 years ago, we can see the motions. Often people think of astronomy as involving timescales like millions or billions of years. Well, that's true, but astronomy can also involve timescales of milliseconds, or in this case, decades. So it's been entertaining to do that. Before we leave off here, though, I did want to get back to the uh, Nobel Prizes. Uh, Every October, I always pay attention to the news because that's when the Nobel Prizes in all fields are, are announced. Um, as we said, Roger Penrose won half of the Nobel Prize for theoretical work predicting black holes. The other half of last October's Nobel Prize went to two observers, leading different competing teams, but finding the same results, studying the center of our own galaxy, and through fancy techniques, watching individual stars orbiting something that was extremely massive. So they, they just followed these, these tracks of, of, um, of stars over the years, carefully plotting out their orbits to fantastic precision uh, and showing that absolutely there was some huge unseen mass that was, uh, whose gravity was causing them to move. In fact, they were even able to show that the orbits could not be exactly explained by Newton's laws, but they needed that small modification that general relativity provides. So uh, they provided uh, really solid evidence. I mentioned that there, was, there were hints in the 70s that the thing in the center of our galaxy was a black hole. Uh, but but uh, Gensel and uh, Gez got uh, credit that half a Nobel Prize for absolutely showing definitively by painstaking observational work things were racing around a 4 million solar mass black hole. So that's at the center of our galaxy. That's really interesting. You've given me something to read and work on. And by the way, we have about less than a minute left here. So, uh, in fact, we only have about 30 seconds. But I was glad you mentioned the book, The Emperor's New Mind. And I'd always love when we get bibliography. And uh, I guess the bibliography for the subjects we've been talking about would be the popular versions of it rather than the scientific versions of it. But apparently uh, Penrose was, was one of those people who, who wrote along those lines. And that sort of makes me interested in more things. But I want to thank you for being on with us tonight, and I've uh, you you made me want to crank up my my uh, uh, Amazon account and see if I can't get a few books in here and catch up with you on some of these things. Doctor, you can buy them from Quail Ridge Books. 
there's an idea right there. Uh, and uh, I'm, in fact, I used to. I just don't get around as as much as I, as I used to. Uh, but uh, thank you, Dr. Reynolds, for being with us tonight. And I, I'll talk to you off the air in just a couple of minutes, for just a couple of minutes, if I may. And I will remind our listeners that Rod Gonski, a weather guy, will be on with us tomorrow night.